Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Director of Reconditioning and Athletic Development at HP Sports, Bill Knowles. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I sound like a broken record a little bit, but I've been stalking Bill for well over a year now to get him on the podcast. Uh, So Bill is the Director of Reconditioning Athletic Development at HP Sports, but is also working very closely with the Philadelphia Union MLS Academy. So anyone that knows Bill's work knows uh, how many guys that he works with from all over the world from high performance sport who come to him for his expertise uh, specifically with regards to rehabilitation so in this episode we discuss uh, everything with regards to ACL risk factors um, markers of potential ACL injury as well as movement screens in general, um, the use of gymnastics, and if anyone has seen any of Bill's presentations or practical workshops, uh, gymnastics form a big part of that. Um, so it was great to dive in a little bit with regards to gymnastics. Uh, landing and deceleration training, a little bit to do with warm-ups in football, which also can, in soccer, which also can be um, applicable to any sports. So if they, if they can't practice at high intensities, learning to both their technical skills and applying it in a tactical situation because they don't have the physical capacity, then we are limiting their ability to become better soccer players. So when I say a better soccer playing athlete, I'm looking at all of the things that I need to do with this person off the ball to give them the ability to sustain this journey of high intensity soccer practices just before we get into the chat with bill just want to say a massive thanks to Val performance makers of the nordboard groin bar and now human track so if you are interested in either of them three products uh, human track which i spoke about a couple of weeks ago but which is a, a screening tool with the use of the xbox connect so if you do want to know a little bit more about any of the products that Val do uh, get onto their website at valdperformance.com and follow them on Twitter at Vald Performance. So also sponsoring this episode today is Forstex. So if you are in the market for a force platform hardware and software solution, uh, make sure you have a little look at their website at forstex.com. But also check out episode 139 of the podcast where co-owner Dr. Daniel Cohen talks about everything to do with um, jump monitoring. So not only talking about force decks, but jump monitoring uh, as a whole. So over to the podcast with Bill. I know you're going to absolutely love it. There's so many gems in here um, from a, a super smart guy. So I hope you enjoy and I'll speak to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So very, very excited this evening to chat with Bill Knowles, who is the Director of Reconditioning and Athletic Development for HP Sports. So welcome to the podcast, Bill. Thank you for having me on. That's good to have you, mate. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, I just want to give us a little bit of a, a brief history of um, of you and, and what you're currently doing. What you're currently doing. Yeah. Well, by by trade, I'm a certified athletic trainer. 
um, from the United States here. Um, that's a blend, of course, kind of like a sports physio. Um, and you start in uni working with athletic teams and athletes only, and uh, you never go to the general public type scenario. Um, you see them on the sidelines uh, for the NFL football games and everything like that. Uh, and then I studied also strength and conditioning when I exited uh, university and got a certified strength and conditioning specialist type background and have utilized that. But uh, yeah, so that background came and I worked in a, uh, a, a private ski racing academy um, like a football academy would be. It's just for alpine ski racers and um, like that. Did that for 14 years as my first job, uh, learned a great deal, uh, applied the trade and craft of rehabilitation or reconditioning because there's a lot of injuries in that sport, especially knee injuries. Um, made my way then to working with this orthopedic group, still up in the state of Vermont in the countryside. And what that allowed me to do was actually to really hang with orthopedic surgeons, sports medicine doctors. Um, thank God, not in their offices, but I had my own training <laughs> center. Um, but you had that collegial relationship of learning and, and really diving into the research more, um, um, looking at what is out there and then questioning it quite aggressively. Uh, and I've always done that throughout my career. But with these doctors and even in my first job with the uh, ski academy, I always had very, very progressive-minded orthopedic surgeons or sports medicine doctors, meaning non-operative doctors. They gave me the green light at a young uh, age in my career to, to, to look at a reconditioning process uh, through a different lens. And it was my lens. Um, cause they don't, they don't teach you a whole lot in college all the time. You have to get that experience after college. Um, so I was able to just kind of go down this road, different path of reconditioning and it was supported and that's different. That's not common with everyone out there. Um, yeah. So with these doctors spent another 10 more years working with athletes now from around the world, uh, as I had a training center in Vermont and now athletes were coming from all, all over the world to, to work with me. Um, and then the past four years, I'm down here in Philadelphia now. And uh, with HP Sports, um, it is a consultancy business uh, where athletes, again, fly in from around the world and, and staff come with them, um, mainly for rehabilitation or reconditioning purposes uh, and a lot of performance training as well that's associated with that. And uh, four years doing that and, uh, and spent a lot of time with the Major League Soccer team here in Philadelphia as well and their academy. So that's where, it's a quick one of it, but that's where I come from. No, that's cool. So I guess that's not a obviously spending time in them types of uh, environments isn't um, it's not the conventional route that people take to get what you've got. It's it it's not oh, that it? conventional, but it, but in a way. So athletic trainers, right? And so, but I guess it's really important because this may come up later. Um, I originally started in physical education, so I was very very interested. You know, I don't have any problem saying it was my best subject when I was young, and uh, yeah, so I really enjoyed that. And and then I started studying it for a couple of years, and just movements and and how kids train and how the kids learn. You know, not for sport, but just for for uh, for movement, being young, and being physically educated. Um, so that then switched into this sports medicine uh, field or athletic training field. All right, so yeah, these trainers are going to be working with athletes and um, um, oftentimes are working with orthopedic surgeons or orthopedic groups, or they work with a local high school. The difference was was the environment I was in at the ski academy, we're way up in the hills, we're way up in the country. Our, my, our team orthopedic surgeon was an hour and 45-minute drive away, and, um, and that's just routine driving, you know, and, and things. So you're kind of up there on your own. So very young, my very first job right out of uni, you're on your own. 
And that's what was unique and different about it. The process now that I've gone through, though, is at that sports academy, when I studied my uh, uh, strength and conditioning, and the reason I did was because we had high incidence of injuries at the school um, in alpine ski racing. So in order to try to decrease that injury uh, frequency, I looked and questioned our prevention and preparation strategies. And so I really dove into the sports science end of things. So that's where uh, Robert started to get a little bit different. The the athletic trainer really starts wearing this strength training hat, this uh, injury audit hat, this sports science hat. And so for 14 years, we were able to make a really dramatic drop in the number of injuries that took place over 14 years. Taking that into applying it to understanding how injury happened, how to prevent it. It really shapes my reconditioning strategy saying, all right, you're hurt. You got to come back. These are the things I, I've seen that are wrong that, that contribute to injury. The reconditioning process has to correct it. And, uh, so it, it has been an alternative route for me personally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So obviously you mentioned that you're doing some work at the, um, at the Academy at the, uh, MLS club. I just want to talk to you a little bit about where you kind of fit in that in the academy puzzle. Yeah, so I came in because uh, um, uh, there was someone that was very involved in getting this academy up and running. The Major League Soccer Club uh, was was mandated to have an academy uh, about five years ago, and uh, a gentleman that's one of the owners of the first team um, took it upon himself to help uh, fund and organize this academy. Because not all the major league soccer clubs necessarily had an abundance of money and funding to put into that, especially in their early few years. So I've known this gentleman for many, many years. And I said, listen, I'll come down here and run my elite professional athlete, you know, reconditioning business out of this new facility that you built. And in turn, let me put in a model of athletic development for youth athletes, in this case, soccer players, that I did at this ski racing academy many years prior. And so I came in in that role of to say how prevention and performance are completely entwined uh, within each other. And, uh, you know, our, our, our best injury prevention processes is a performance mindset. It's a performance application because if they're hurt, they can't train. If they can't train, they can't perform. So all of a sudden, our athletic development model was the injury prevention model. If they did get hurt, we would recondition them, and I train all of our staff, and I help design all those programs. Well, the reconditioning process looks just like the athletic development model. And then injury reduction is performance. So when I say it's entwined, it's like you cannot separate out performance, prevention, and the reconditioning process. They're all tied tightly together. So our strength coaches here, we call them athletic development coaches, they are an integral part of the reconditioning process. Our athletic trainers or sports physios, they are an integral part of our performance training every day. So our sports physios are on the floor when there's a weightlift going on, coaching weightlifting as well. They could be warming up a team prior to training. Our strength coach could be leading a reconditioning session. So there's no boundaries. They all share an office and everyone talks the same common language. So that's what I've created from this athletic development model here at the academy and it fits into also how i look at my pro athletes as well Mm -hmm. so this is moving away from definitely moving away from what i had planned to work to speak to you about but um putting together the athletic development model so for anyone that's kind of in that 
um, kind of stage in their career where they're defining what that is for them and how they're going to implement it. Do you just want to give us a kind of a quick overview, firstly, what that athletic development model looks like and how you how that's developed over time? Yeah, it like I said, it started with with a, a physical education um, um, vision. Uh, how do you teach people to 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 move efficiently? These fundamental movement skills, of course. Um, you know, it's not new out there that uh, we're talking about our our kids as physically educated today as they once were. Um, and you know, fairly common. The answer is no, they're not. There's a lot of social issues related to that. That's a whole other topic, isn't it? Um, but um, it is affecting. Well, then we talk about specialization as well. And, um, what is, how is that affecting them? So I think the overall theme, when I look at if they were ski racers, if they were basketball players, if they're soccer players, in this case, we'll, you know, call them soccer players or footballers. The athletic development model is about making them better soccer playing athletes. And, and to make them a better soccer player, we have to give them the body and the ability in order to sustain the journey through their technical and tactical um, um, experiences, right? So if they if they can't practice at high intensities, learning to both their technical skills and applying it in a tactical situation because they don't have the physical capacity, then we are limiting their ability to become better soccer players. So when I say a better soccer playing athlete, I'm looking at all of the things that I need to do with this person off the ball to give them the ability to sustain this journey of high intensity soccer practices, you know, annually. And, and we know how that's going with the youth. They're, they're playing a ton. They're playing a lot. And I don't, I don't like too much specialization, you know, before this age of maybe 13 or 14, but I work in it and then I'm involved in it. So I'm trying to do something about it by increasing their their overall ability to express themselves athletically and um yeah seems to be working pretty well here sweet so to back on back on track with what i was uh what i was planning to uh to ask you about and that was the, the first thing that is on the list is is return to play uh after acl but kind of before we get there um and i, I have to uh give a special mention to callum walsh for having a little chat about you coming on and and uh and potential topics that may resonate with uh with people in the field and, and the first one was uh predictors and risk factors for acls um obviously we, we talked beforehand about um my rip off of a dvd of a dvd of a dvd of uh you working with sam hutchinson back probably 2009-2010 which i'm was he acl was sam acl it was it wasn't it was different type of knee injury okay. yeah yeah Okay, but um, yeah, predict some risk factors for for ACLs. Um, an overview, superb. Well, it's so difficult, you know, for us to try and and pigeonhole that someone looks as if they're going to have a problem. I look at this from again this athletic development perspective. Does someone have the movement efficiency? to run, jump, skip, tumble, roll, push, pull, fall, bend, squat, hinge, hop, um, bound, right? All of these fundamental movement qualities. 
what I look at and saying, is there a profile? When someone doesn't look like they can do those things well, I look at it and say it's compromising potentially their overall athletic athletic expression that they bring within to the skills of the game. So there's a lot of footballers that I've worked with, soccer players that I've worked with, that they're really good at, at playing football, but they don't move very well at all. Now, many of them could be truly elite players. And so you say it's like, yeah, they're truly elite, you know, but they all want to try to be better. And then your average footballers, it's like, is there something that is limiting them from becoming significantly better? Is it knowledge of the game? Is it confidence? Is it what are these things? So I'm just choosing to go down this road to be like, look at how they move, not from a functional movement screen perspective and things, but within the context of your athletic development plan, your model. So how you set up your strength training uh, programs, your prevention programs, your warm-ups, your weight lifts, whatever you might be doing, those are actually the tests. So the, the, the training is the assessment, you know, and the assessment is actually training them every day and then coaching them into better positions and better movements over time. And when I see people lacking those ability, for example, just poor ankle range of motion, which limits their dorsiflexion, which limits their squatting ability. It limits their timing of absorbing impact into the ground, maybe. Decreases their ability for stiffness on hitting the ground, change of direction, whatever it might be. I just, I see those things as potential predictors for injury. Is it ACL injury? Yeah, it might be. But, but more importantly, I think, Rob, is I look at it as, as predictors of poor performance. So remember, we look at a lot of, we look at a lot of, uh, injury prevention, um, and perspectives and we're, we're, we're trying to find things that maybe aren't there or aren't necessarily that important. And, and we're, we're medicalizing, um, sport oftentimes. And, you know, I've, I've written about this in, in, in an abstract that I wrote for going to this conference, you know, but again, the medicalization of sport where the process by which sport specific conditions and problems come to be defined and treated as medical conditions and thus become the subject of medical study, diagnosis, prevention, or treatment. When in fact, the kid just sucks at squatting or jumping or landing and they've just never been coached how to do it well. And, and a lot of times is we, we create strategies on movements or I'm sorry, we, we, we create a, 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 a um, observation on someone's movements and try to strip it down as to why it's happening versus just they're uncoordinated. Not that the glute meat is too weak or their, ten, you know, their, their tensor fascia is too tight or they're lacking hip mobility. Sometimes it's just pure coordination. So that takes you all the way back to when they're kids, you know, are they physically educated? Maybe now it's starting to show up that it's a problem. So what are the predicted and the risk factors? Are they strong enough? Do they have very good stiffness, which is required for bounding, jumping, um, single leg hops, not for distance and those types of tests, but within the training environment? Think more like what athletics is about in track and field. And, and, uh, and then build off from there. Strength isn't the only answer. It's, it's just not the only answer. You know, if they, if people land when the knee goes a little bit valgus and they're hopping on one leg, you know, it's like, that's because in the real game, when you play, the knee goes valgus. You know, it's just natural. That's normal. Nobody lands in this pristine clinical position that we say soft landing, 
squat, and so forth. Landing can be a violent, aggressive thing because they typically are going somewhere after they land. Like, what's the next play? So you jump up for a header, you jump up to catch a ball. When you land, there's typically another play that's following. But in the gym or in the lab or in the PT clinic, there's no next play. So you get to concentrate on this beautiful symmetry and everything like that. And we're not distorting that landing enough. And when you distort landings and you distort decelerations and things, it's pretty ugly looking sometimes. It's not always pretty. And uh, yeah, so I think we have to go down that path of, from a predictive perspective, is if the training is intense enough, if the training is risky enough, because you have to, um, and pushing the boundaries, I think that the training is the assessment on a regular day-to-day basis. I don't look at many other risk factors like hamstring strength solely. It's just one of those things, but it doesn't really predict that much. Mm -hmm. So with so much info out there about ACLs, they continue to happen. What do you think the main, what do you think the problem is apart from obviously potentially what you've just said? Yeah. Yeah. What I think is that a prevention strategy that we have in place that I put into place and, and I feel is very, very important is the the uh, the activation or the warm up? Now, FIFA eleven, you know, eleven plus, right? They've come out with their whole activation, and there's there's sports metrics and the PEP program. There's all these different prevention programs, and all it does is say something more than nothing before you play your sport, soccer, um, um, decreases the risk of injury. And there's decent data that shows that those programs have reduced injuries. Um, there's a lot of holes in it and a lot of people think that it's not, it, it might not be long-term strategy depending on how well it's executed every day and things like that. Um, but I put into place here a strength-based warm-up and this strength-based warm-up says I don't need a ball and I don't need just little skips and open the gate and close your gate for hip mobility. We're actually just doing high-intensity movements. It's bracing. It's jumping. It's bounding. It's hopping. Um, they're hitting the ground. They're doing gymnastic movements and rolling. Um, they're jumping in the air with other partners shoving them so they land awkwardly and off balance. And then we do running mechanics. This And all this is happening in 12 to 15 minutes. But this day-to-day investment for 12 to 15 minutes, where we end up micro-dosing our athletic development model every day. And and a week and a month and a year in our four or five-year career of a youth athlete, oh my gosh, it, it adds up to a lot. So when, when you say you don't have time to get these kids into the gym or we don't have the facilities for it and blah, 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 it's, I don't agree with it. You You can do a lot of strength development. Now, obviously, Rob, it's not maximum strength. There's no bars and there's no dumbbells on the pitch. But you don't need those things to microdose strength that can have a prevention strategy. So, yes, what what do I think can significantly reduce these injuries is a much higher intensity warm-up that isn't just about the running, but is really lunging and change of direction and multi-directional lunges to wake up the hamstrings, not only to decrease knee injuries, but decrease hamstring injuries. And then you got to run fast in the warm-up as well. You know, you want to decrease the risk of some of these hamstring injuries, you got to run fast. Fast players need to run fast. That's how they, they get, they stay fast and they reduce the risk of injury because they consistently run fast. 
So those are some of the really important strategies. And then we make sure that we are constantly in season strength training them in the weight room as well. Um, and uh, have a very good blend of the warm up and the weightlifting or, or the strength development throughout the entire season. You just got to be consistent. So why, when I watch, um, I've been to football clubs, training grounds, and even on, on Sky when the, the guys are, are, are warming up for, um, for games, there's still the classic jog around the pitch. There's still the classic uh, open and open and close the gates. Yep, yep. And I've I've spoken to people in in other sports who who think it's laughable. Yep. Why, why is it? I mean, this is not a great question, but why is that continuing to happen? It's cultural, and so yeah, you know, there's a there's a massive culture with it, and uh, there's things that are done in sport that are just will will always be there and always be done. Um, you know, I get, I've had plenty of, uh, people from around the world, uh, that have come to look at coaches, um, this athletic development model for these youth soccer players that we have in place here. Um, and they look at it and just say the warm ups, you know, 12, 15 minutes every day, but you're not using a ball, you know, so, I mean, you, you don't have any specificity here. And I say, you know, in the warm up, we are not trying to replicate the demands of the sport. We are preparing them for the demands of the sport. So I I don't need the ball to prepare them for the demands of the sport. In fact, when they actually do play that game, we know the numbers. The, the kid's foot's on that ball about, you know, 5%, 4%, and some, some greater, your midfielders or something, but it's a tiny amount of time that the ball's at the foot. Otherwise, for soccer players who everyone thinks that their their movement patterns and strategies are so unique to any other sport, you know, football's just different. Football's different, everyone says. But if you block them off from the hips down, and I know you said you worked in women's lacrosse. I've worked, I went to the University of North Carolina, and we had a discussion with their female soccer coaches and their female lacrosse coaches and all the physios and strength coaches and everything. Because there was, there was, they've had some, some knee injuries, and we we're having a discussion about it. And it's like, look, from the hips down, it's the same athlete. You know, from the hips up, the girls are holding, you know, lacrosse sticks. It's different. From the hips down, it's the same athletes. It, it looks like a basketball player. It looks like a soccer player. It looks like a rugby player. I don't have to tell you. So when they have the ball, it's their body shapes differently, but they're not usually blowing a hamstring out when they're dribbling, you know, with the ball and things like that. So they might be sprinting. That's true. And, 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 and a run with the ball. But my point is, is the knee injuries and the other things, you know, they're usually occurring when they're chasing or tracking other people down and things. So. So I look at it and say, you're not that different. And why do we keep doing some of these, uh, these certain type strategies? And it's cultural. But I will say is that I watch the same warmups as much as I can. Um, you know, when I go to games, but especially on TV, um, yeah, I sit down because I'm interested in it like you. And I've worked with a lot of clubs and I see a lot of the things that I've taught them, the premiership clubs that they're using. So it's, it's slowly changing. It's slowly changing. I'm optimistic for it, actually. As always, just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Bill. Um, so more coming up uh, in part two with regards to uh, gymnastics and movement screens. So I know you'll, uh, I know you'll love part two. Hopefully, just as much as you love part one. But just want to say a big thanks to Coach Me Plus for sponsoring this episode today. So Coach Me Plus are an athlete management uh, platform based out of Buffalo uh, on the east coast of the US. So if you are interested in uh, getting to know more about uh, athlete management systems, uh, the previous episode of the podcast uh, with Doug McKenney, 
who is the uh, sports science consultant with Coach Me Plus. Uh, goes into a lot of depth about athlete management systems and what they are and the questions you need to be asking if you are in the market for uh, an athlete management system. So thanks to them guys for sponsoring the episode today. Uh, again, I would love your feedback on uh, this episode of the podcast with Bill, um, but I will, uh, I'll get back to the interview with Bill. I know you'll love it um, and I will uh, chat to you soon. So you mentioned activation there, which has, again, become a staple uh, on Sky when I'm watching the, the Premier League games and the Championship games. And, and as far down as you can probably go, people are seeing that and replicating it, even five, six, seven leagues below. So what's what's your thoughts on activation and the things you're seeing um, that are becoming common practice out there? Well, uh, again, you just, yeah, you see, you know, no ball involved. You're seeing a lot more um, multi-directional lunging or forward lunging and side forward lunge, side lunge, rotational lunges, um, which which is just phenomenal hamstring work. You know, it's there's so many different ways that we're looking at testing hamstrings or training hamstrings, but gosh, just just lunge. It's there's a lot of good things happening there. But and then obviously there's some sprinting, there's some jumping, there's some acceleration movements that are going on. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm way more interested in the change of direction and the cut and the pivoting during that warm up. Short, sharp, intense little spaces. But here's the difference in what we see is that there's the there's the introduction of the movement. There is the um, 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 acceptance that these movements are important prior to. Um, warming up with the ball on game day. And then once you warm up with the ball on game day, you're just, you're just going through motions, getting ready for, for play, kicking balls, passing balls, blah, blah, blah. You know, that, that's over with, right? But prepare for that. So I'm seeing the things. And so the introduction of the movement's good, but the execution of the movements are average to below average regularly. That's what, I think that's what you're getting at. And it's like, so we watch a lot of this and say, dude, they're doing those mini band exercises. But they're doing them very poorly. They're doing that hop forward and jump back, hop forward and jump back, but they don't have any good shin angle. They're breaking over at the waist. They're, you know, their knee might be a little bit valgus and it, it for lazy reasons. So basically they're just not, they're not teaching stiffness and they're not preparing the high intensity stiff feeling. So execution of all these injury prevention strategies is the key. It's the quality of the execution. It's not the exercise itself. You can have very basic exercises done extremely well that will, that will help significantly. But you can have the most elaborate routine that's executed poorly, coached poorly, introduced poorly, and then executed poorly, and we're doing nothing. So I oftentimes look at those warm-ups, Robin, I'm like, oh, okay, they're, they're doing stuff. You know, and you just, you leave it there. It's like, well, what do you mean by stuff? It's like, they're, they're doing stuff, but they're not getting anything out of the stuff they're doing. That's where the breakdown comes. Yeah, no, I agree. I do, I do get amused when I watch, uh, I just think, what are these players thinking when they're doing this? And you can just see on the face, they're just absolutely hating it. Um, it, it, but yeah, it, it can be, you know, and I've always felt, you know, and I've talked to a lot of, you know, good, you know, performance coaches and things and, Game day is game day. It's autopilot. You're just keeping them in a frame of mind um, for them to be, you know, mentally ready. And then you're just, you have to warm them up at enough intensity to see if someone's going to pull up with a soft tissue concern. Um, or if they're sick, you know, you got you to gotta stress them enough that they need to tap out or, or they soft tissue injury complaint that might make a change in the rotation. Um, and so, but otherwise, these guys, you know, they're on autopilot. So... 
Yeah, that's why sometimes they're not paying much attention. So, but everyone else is paying attention to them, but they're not paying that much attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so just going back to something that you we we kind of little touched on a little bit at the start, which was uh, movement screens. So I'd just love to get your your view on movement screens in general. Well, again, I, I came through at a young age, uh, early in my career, that that we. We coach, we need to coach good quality movements, whether that's in physical education or that's in, in performance training or athletic development. And young in my career, I read a book. Uh, there was a gentleman who came out with, with basically a, a movement screen and it was, it was before FMS and things like that. And he was a brilliant guy who wrote it and everything like that. He was young in his career and everything. And so I was amazed. But one of the movements, and this, again, this is in my first four or five years as a, as a young professional, but one was an overhead stick squat. So I was like, well, okay. And so I was reading about that. And then I heard the gentleman actually lecture at a, at a big conference. And I saw it. And so the, the, the information was happened to be about, yeah, there's someone doing over a stick squat. They break at the waist. Their knees came in. And so therefore, we have to look at all of these things, you know, throughout the entire kinetic chain as to what could be going on. You know, and you could tick all those boxes of saying, yep, they're tight here, they're tight here, they lack range of motion here, and this is what's going on. Yet I was already four to five years into coaching in the weight room. Remember, I was a sports medicine guy, but but in order to reduce injury, I had to get way into strength training, conditioning. And I didn't learn that in college. I had to make myself a student of it after college because that was the avenue to reduce injury. So when I when I realized how many kids were really poor at at squatting, and then I said, okay, there's this overhead stick squat, you know, thing that's not a craze, but it's just a snatch movement, isn't it? But it slowly became an assessment tool. And so many of the kids were really bad at it. But all I did was we, we coached them significantly and you changed, you lifted the heels and then you did it this way and you did it that way. And then you slowly were able to make them very good at the movement without necessarily diving into why they weren't good at it. Like there was a biomechanical or a, 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 a tissue impedance that was going on. No, it just, it was coaching. Occasionally, you got a kid who was really tight, tight, tight in the hips, and maybe they had labral tears. This was in the 90s, so that those things didn't exist in the 90s, actually. And, uh, <laughs> and so they do now. Um, but basically, so, so my, my frame, uh, my reference was, I, I'm pretty sure I can coach most of all these kids in like in a big uh, setting into much better movement patterns and qualities. So when the movement screens all started coming out, I started questioning a lot of them being like, okay, you just had someone do that movement screen. They're really poor at it, but can you give me five minutes or can you give me two days? And I could make that one of three, I, you know, not in every case necessarily, but I, I bet I could make that significantly change. So I, I felt like that, again, that medicalization where we're, 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 we're being complexifiers. So Vern Gambetta has been a colleague of mine for many, many years. And, you know, he taught me many years ago, simplicity yields complexity. And, and it's like, don't be a complexifier. Yes, these things are complex issues and there's, and running and sprint mechanics, but ultimately it's simple. It's just running fast. Give them a few good cues and they start running faster. We know that it's a complex issue, right? The whole body coordinating and everything like that. But if I think of it in simple terms, so movement screens for me, I've just been, I'm like, Saying, I, 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 I'm really not that interested other than some very basic fundamental ones. I want to, I want a kid to be able to squat. I just want to see good ankle knee, hip hinge, ankle knee flexion and things like that. Um, with a stick, it's fine. Not even overhead. You know, these soccer players are not overhead athletes. So, I, you know, but 
but I've never used FMS, not because I disagree with it. I, I just never went down that path. So we add a few movements, you know, four or five, maybe adductors, hip internal, external rotators, again, for these soccer players, because I just look at the areas that are most commonly injured traditionally in soccer. Adductors, hip, labral, groin. So I, I look at some of those assessments. So, so yeah, I can't give you a really solid answer. I, I like functional movements um, and assess the quality of them doing those things. Jumping and running and, and, and basically my athletic development model, every warm-up and all of our weight lifts, don't even call them weight lifts here, we just call them you know, training sessions in the gym, they have so many aspects that are worth assessing. So we're just micro-dosing the chance to correct deficiencies through training. And, and that works for the majority of kids. And the kids that don't, doesn't work. That are super tight in the hips, and so they go into a special program and, and get more re remedial work on that. So, yeah. Do you think Do you think the the support for the movement screen is just to give people? It feels like it gives people direction. It gives people a focus. It gives people a, a number. Mm -hmm. And high is good, low is bad. Mm -hmm. so yeah. Rather than like you say about getting deeper into the the issue. Yeah, I and 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 I if if you use a screen and you use it well, and you use it consistently, that's fantastic. I don't have any problems. If you then come up with a solution to why a kid is a, a one, two, or three, or a here, we look at it as just green, yellow, red, you know, and um, and we have a big range in there. And so green, yellow, red. And so um, if it's consistent for you and you think you make some improvements in those kids and that improvement can translate onto the pitch, then fantastic. Do, do it any way you want and however you want to use. Does it give you something to stand on? But what I do feel on this idea of the medicalization of sport, um, these sports-specific conditions, meaning they can't squat and bend properly. They can't sidestep under a hurdle with any good, efficient movement because they lack the physical, they lack the coordination and timing of the movement. But it's often looked at because they have all these other issues that could be going on versus they just suck at stepping under a hurdle because they don't understand it. So we get numbers um, to stand behind. And we also, and this isn't why a movement screen was developed. A movement screen wasn't developed for you to stand behind and say, we've tested these kids, therefore um, we're being objective. That's not why. It's turned into that though. It's turned into a thing of like, we're doing something about injuries because we're doing a screen. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> the screen doesn't stop the injury. The screen just gives you information. But everyone, it's kind of, you know, our impact tests for concussions and things. You know, there's a lot of flaws in a lot of these concussion strategies, but you can stand behind saying, we're doing something about these concussions and, how, and what we're doing. And it's like, yeah, it's scratching the surface. So I'm, I'm happy that people do screens and, and I support anyone that does it. I, I do it a little bit differently and I, I really use the day to day coaching and the day to day training with the athletes as the, as the answer to what poor movements look like. You know, remember, there are some outliers that you have to treat specially. There's no question. You know, they need special additional work. But for the most part, over time, with very good coaching and consistent application of good movement strategies as part of your overall daily plan, most of these issues clear up.
So I know we're, we're a little bit pushed for time, but one thing I just wanted to touch on before I let you go is uh, the use of gymnastics. And again, going back to the um, the, the kind of uh, videos that I've got, and there's, there's plenty of gymnastics uh, gymnastics style movements going on in the in the stuff that you put out there. Yes. What's the how do you feel the um, what's the importance of gymnastics? And and one thing that I've spoke to quite a few people about is is actually measuring the impact you uh you make with them kind of movements and maybe the difficulty around that yeah the so a fundamental or a, a to me an essential um collection of movements in in the sport of athletics if we can do athletics well if you can run jump and throw and you can do it well. Just think of all the different events in athletics. You're, you're set up really well to become a, a, a good athlete. You know, you, you're, you're set up very well to almost any sport. Now, expand upon that. You need to be able to swim. All right. And that's more of a life skill than it necessarily is things. But if we just think of athletes over on general and how they train, because they're going to eventually need to use a pool, but, but run, jump, throw. So athletics is, is essential. Swimming is just one of those essential things. And I've worked with a lot of athletes who can't swim and they've been hurt and the pool's in anxiety versus a great training environment for them because they've got a bad knee or a bad back or something, right? So that's important as for young athletes. Gymnastics is another one of those. So these movement strategies that take place in gymnastics, all of the bracing, all of the core, all of the motor patterning, but the spatial awareness that's associated with it drives, drives this cerebellar response to tumbling and rolling and cartwheeling and bouncing, right? And the timing to do these coordinated actions of flipping in the air, dive rolls, rolling up in the ground, you know, walking your feet up uh, against a wall and showing your shoulder integrity, strength and things, and, or doing a handstand and being comfortable not panicking up there. I think that there is so much that takes place in gymnastics that is driving this, this motor control, this cerebellar response that excites the system to a level that you, you can't get with just playing basketball or just playing soccer, you know, uh, or, or, or lacrosse. So you got to increase the bandwidth of this excitability, this bandwidth of adaptation. And gymnastics is one of those areas that does that. In my reconditioning athletes, I often will have, I had NBA players, you know, they're 6'10", they're 6'11". I've got them doing dive rolls on mats. I've got them doing backwards rolls and jumping over obstacles on the gymnast, hopping on trampolines. And they'll tell you, I've either never done this or I haven't done this since I was a little kid in school, right? Yet they thrive in that environment. So what we do is from a reconditioning perspective and why we also use gymnastics, I've got a proper gymnastics floor, the bouncy, you know, sprung floor. I've got a, a tumble track trampoline that's built into the floor so they can bounce on those, right? Well, it allows them to have a decreased fear of impact and load that's taking place on the ground. So for a knee injury or an ankle injury, whatever it might be, a hip injury. So they have increased confidence levels. So then they start moving more athletically and the floor actually contributes to this, this stiffness pattern because they don't have to hit the floor hard in order to get a really good response and bounce off the floor. So it increases that confidence and it's it's a it's a process that I call pulling their pulling the athlete out of their injury. 
So athletes are often stuck inside a knee injury or hip injury or shoulder injury. I had an NBA basketball player who was stuck inside of a wrist injury. He had a fracture in his wrist. What he was stuck with was that if he falls on the ground, the fear of that wrist, right? Or dunking, dunking, right? And so his real hangup of returning back to high intensity team training, other than just doing all of his free throws and training and blah, 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 but really practicing properly was if I fall on the wrist. So I was able to use a soft environment, used all my mats, get him jumping. And next thing you know, he, he was starting to fall and trust that wrist. So we pulled him out of his wrist injury. A knee injured guy who's afraid of really, boom, hitting the ground with a stiff foot and ankle. He's afraid on the gymnastics floor. He loses, he loses that uh, fear and he starts jumping and hopping. And within one session, you've significantly increased his confidence or confidence restoration by pulling the athlete out of his injury. And that sometimes is all it takes to turn an athlete into a new chapter to say, I'm ready to do this on the pitch now because they didn't trust it. So yeah, the gymnastics offers a lot of restoration, uh, a confidence restoration, but it also just offers a tremendous chance to move and be athletic in ways that they're not used to. And that stimulation um, is significant. And that stimulation, Rob, see, that then affects everything you do after. So if you go and do sprint mechanics after, if you go and do even some strength training, or if you go and do some technical work, because they've been sparked up, so to speak, everything lights up in all their other aspects of what they want to try to achieve. Whether it's, like I said, sprinting, jumping, catching a ball, you know, kicking a ball. Yeah. So you do, you, you pull these athletes up to another level. It's a very high, intense nervous system um, process gymnastics goes. So, and then it's fun. It's just a lot of fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Hell yeah. It's a lot, a lot of fun. So. <laughs> Well, I can just, I'm just looking at the time. I've just well, ticked over. I'm, I'm okay. My... If you're okay. I, Are you sure? I do. I think we may have said I only had to one, but I, I, uh, I'm okay now. So if you, I'm happy to carry on. Perfect. Happy days. So yeah, it was, it was, this, this came up in, and came into my head when we were talking about Sam and the, the, the DVD that I'd, that I'd seen. And the, and it kind of touched on it there with the gymnastics side of things is the, the mental impact of an injury. Um, like the basketball player that you mentioned that is so ingrained in their head. And how much how much um, emphasis are you putting on the kind of psychological aspect of that injury as well as the, um, the you know, the, the physical? Yeah, a, 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 a huge amount. So I like to think when, 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 when these athletes have been, you know, working with their teams, you know, like I said, guys coming from around the world and they've been working with their physios and their fitness coaches and things. But when you have a long-term injury, um, this is this idea, you get trapped in the injury a little bit, you know, everyone's always asking you how it's doing and, and, uh, all exercises and things are kind of based around it. Um, a lot of the teams, especially a lot of teams I've consulted with and worked with and things are, are doing a really good job now of training what I call training around the injury. So, so you can pull an athlete out of their injury. You know, that's one concept I discussed, and that's a psychological approach and a physiological approach. But you also have to learn how to train around the injury. So if I think of like you've got a big, big uh, circle, the circle represents the whole, the whole athlete, both physiological and psychological. It's, it's the being. It's the complete athlete. Now, take a very small circle and put it inside the big one. So, and it can be really small. It could be as like a football to the size of a, uh, you know, a, a, a pound, 
right? And just put it right there, a quarter, and just put it right there. So it's a very small thing. And I like to think is the small circles the injury sitting inside of the of the hole. And if you if you talk about it that way, if you if you approach the athlete that way every day, and if everyone on your team and everyone in the club, if everyone approaches it that way, then they see the whole athlete and what the athlete is doing, everything, life, how's their family, how's their wife, you know, um, anything, right? Then they don't get trapped in the injury as much psychologically. And then that affects the physiology of being trapped in that injury for fear of re-injury. So yes, we have to pull this athlete out. We got to train around the injuries. And then to add to that is what those gymnastics can be. And even in the pool, the pool is a, if the athlete's comfortable with water, but we make them comfortable even if they're not because we give them a lot of flotation suits and things, right? So they, they know they're not going to drown. But the move, the movements in the water, because of the low gravity that's on the body, they can express themselves significantly better. Even plyometrics with a guy that's got a bad knee or a bad low back. They can do plyos in the water. They athletically express themselves with intensity because the landing is so um, um, soft. So we say it this way is a movement is something you feel, but an exercise is something that you do. And so exercises are like therapy. Exercises is, is stuff you have to do. Movements, though, are things you feel, you athletically feel. So all of a sudden that athlete starts jumping around on the gymnastics floor and trying things. Those are exercises. They're, you could say, well, Bill, it's a forward roll. It's an exercise. And it's like, nah, you could call it that. I'm going to call it the movement of the forward roll. And then I link that into a forward roll and to jump over that hurdle. So it's like parkour, so to speak. It's the parkour is like movement after movement. And those guys are feeling it and doing it. You know, they don't think like they're doing specific you know, just a bench press, an exercise. So it's a very coordinative activity. And that's why I use a lot of um, um, games every day with these guys. Catch and throw games, badminton games, um, tennis type games, hitting balls against the wall, catch and throw, like competitions, anything we can do. Dodgeball as well, Bill? Dodgeball, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Dodgeball, we bring out the baseball, American footballs, hula hoops, Anything to challenge and um, and stimulate eyes, eyes moving, brain thinking, it's it's a it's heightening the nervous, it's heightening this motor cord, it's heightening everything up so that can be applied to then the rest of their daily training program, weekly training program, monthly training program. So when I play a little game of like badminton inside the gym, no net, just whacking balls, whacking the shuttlecock back and forth at each other. I get guys who they can't they can't walk without a limp, but they're playing badminton beautifully. And then they go to walk and they limp again. And you know it's because they're trapped into that that fractured ankle. You know, they're coming back from a fractured ankle. They're still trapped in that. But when they quote unquote forget about it, and it's not uh, forgetting about it, just yeah, it's 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 kind of like people who talk about muscle memory, you know. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, they forget about it because it's just an easy thing to say. And you're like, yeah, but that's the simple phrase. If you want to talk about the complex part of this, oh man, they are just driving impulses and they're being reactive and they're being athletic. And what that does to the whole system to reduce pain and reduce inhibitions in the whole body carries over. It just carries over to the next day's training. It's, it's really good. So, and again, it's fun.
And laughter. Absolutely. Laughter is still incredible medicine, not only for athletes coming back from injury, but for healthy athletes. Laughter in a training environment, obviously not all the time, but is really good medicine. So. I just thought then I've um, I've mentioned that DVD a couple of times. Do you do you have any kind of official stuff that is out there currently of you uh, working and kind of case studies and things like that? Yeah, no, not so much. Okay. And, and, and okay. Uh, there is there is a, a good YouTube clip that that uh, um, uh, where I gave an hour long uh, or so talk about the athletic development model uh, with yep. some good video clips and things. That's that's up there. Um, but a lot of it is because um, they're they're. You know, private kind of you know videos with these with these athletes ones that have been surfaced out um and there's there's a lot of them that are out there i've i've licensed you know i've given them to different physios and different performance coaches because it was their athlete and if they've shared it um then i'm i'm, I'm happy that's with that but they were that's yeah. their call yeah 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 exactly. okay cool and so have you got a website have you got a website for your Consulting and things? Yeah, yeah. HPSports.com. Uh, HPSports.com. And HP Sports is a, uh, yeah, it's a consulting, you know, uh, business. Um, uh, there's a couple colleagues that of mine that are, that are also in that. One is a, he's a coaching education, uh, director, uh, or, or, or specialist that works quite a bit with, in alpine skiing and also with our, our, our first team and our academy coaches and things like that. And then a woman, uh, Dr. Christina Fink, uh, she's a, a performance psychologist, very talented. And, um, we all have our own little um businesses within the umbrella of hp sports um so they'll you know when you look me up you'll see these other two colleagues you know, they were all part of one central group but um we all have different areas of special speciality mm-hmm. and you're on social media bill as well twitter yeah twitter i'm, I'm, I'm slow nice. yeah i'm a little bit slow and things like that and uh yeah i know it's like i just i wonder how the hell some sometimes some guys have the time <laughs> to tweet as much as they do, but uh, but it, but I do respect the creativity of a lot of the tweets and things and so forth. I I do it, you know, I binge tweet here and there and things like that. But uh, I'll get better at it, and it's it's good to have out there. But um, um, yeah, I, I I have been around to a lot of lectures and places, so they should be on. People should be on the lookout for when I'm coming over to the UK giving talks and things like that. Anything planned? Uh, nothing planned, uh, um, just yet, but, uh, but you know, um, it's always in, it's always in the works. I come over to a lot of clubs because they'll, they'll, they'll bring me in to do CPD courses within their, within their program, uh, only. And when we do that, we try to try to link it out to, uh, to open something else. Cause I'm already in the country and, uh, try to open something else up and things, but nothing, nothing planned in the short term. Not yet. Nice. Cool. Well, I really appreciate your time and going over time as well. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for, uh, over an hour having a little chat and um and we'll keep in touch bill no it was my pleasure they're good questions and uh yeah people can definitely reach out to me you know through the website on the email and uh the twitter um and uh if there's any questions or or, uh, things that i can add i'd be happy to well thanks again mate cheers buddy thanks mate bye-bye thanks for tuning in to this episode of the pacey performance podcast i hope you enjoyed the chat with bill so massive thanks to coach me plus Force Decks and Vald Performance for sponsoring this episode today. So we've got some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. Uh, a very long-awaited part two, uh, which I think will uh, offer some fantastic value uh, to those that tune in. Just don't forget to click subscribe on your chosen podcast player. 
uh, so you can get the automatic download for every Thursday. Uh, every Thursday morning UK time, you will get that podcast straight onto your phone, tablet or computer. So thanks again for your support. Again, would love your feedback and I will chat to you soon.